Good morning. <laughs> so I am here today to share with you about mono, true biblical monotheism. Okay, that God is one. When God says he is one, that means he truly is one. Let me give you a basic summary of, of my beliefs. I am a true monotheist because as God has revealed himself in the Bible as one, I believe that he is one. He is not three persons. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that he is three. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say he is three persons. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible anywhere. But God is absolutely one. I believe that the Bible alone is the word of God. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. I believe that God is personal, loving. He's the perfect judge of the whole universe. That God is one. The Hebrew Old Testament is the revelation of God given to the Jewish people. And never once in that portion of Scripture does it say that God has multiple personalities. You can just ask any Jew. If you ever meet a Jewish person, ask that person, is, is God three or is God one? And of course they will answer, absolutely God is one. Critical to their beliefs, and they believe and know the Hebrew Scriptures perhaps more than we do. The Old Testament is very clear that there is only one God and that He is only one person. There is not one Jew who believes that God is three people because the Old Testament simply doesn't teach that. Where many Christians get tripped up is with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes into the world, they think that because Jesus was in heaven and then came to earth, He must be someone different than the Father. He must be someone separate but the, uh, than the Father. But the Bible tells a different story. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it's Christmas time, so this verse is probably on your mind. Look at what it says. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. If you've ever heard someone who claims that the Trinity is in the Bible try to explain this verse, you know they have a really hard time. Because it says the Son is the Father. It says that Jesus Christ is the Father. And so they can get really tripped up over this. Well, take the Bible for what it says. He, the coming one, is the Father. In Colossians 2.9, how about this verse? In Colossians 2.9 it says, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. Does that include the Father? Well, of course it does. It's all the Godhead dwelling in Jesus Christ. If you're going to say that the Father is not in Jesus, that Jesus is someone separate than the Father, then you have to say that only some of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. Any other view than what it says, that all deity dwells in Christ, is to say that just some deity dwells in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, we'll look at a few verses in John. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of John chapter 8. And I want you to see this for yourself. Look with me at John 8, 19. These are the very words of Jesus. If you won't take Isaiah seriously, if you won't take Colossians seriously, maybe you'll take the words of Christ seriously. When he says in John 8, verse 19, if you knew me, you would know my father also. And then he dropped down to verse 24. He says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
Who's the he? In verse 24, well, it's the Father. Because the Father is in Jesus. This is His teaching. And in verse 24, unless you believe that Jesus is the Father, you will die in your sins. How about John 6? Turn back to John 6, verse 44. It's a verse that you probably know. Where Jesus says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look at John 12, 32. You see that the Father is doing the drawing. Well, look at John 12, verse 32. Jesus said, I'm having a hard time seeing my verse numbers. There it is. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. Well, Jesus taught that the Father is the one who does the drawing. And in chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, I will do the drawing. Jesus is the Father. Time and time again in the book of John, Jesus is identifying Himself with the I Am of Exodus 3.14. And who is that great I Am? Well, ask any Jew. The Father. Who is one? Jesus is identifying Himself with the God of the Old Testament. The God who is but one person. He and the Father are one. John 10.30. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You've probably heard this before. And some Trinitarians try to explain this in strange ways. It means what it says. Jesus is the Father. How much more clear could He put it? That Jesus and the Father truly are one. And here's, I think, one of the most powerful examples that demonstrate that Jesus is the Father. In the book of Revelation, How many gods are there in the book of Revelation? Can you tell me? How many gods are there? One. How many thrones are there? One. And who's seated on that throne? Oh, you sound like true biblical monotheists. Good job. In Revelation 22, the first four verses of Revelation 22, it says there's a river coming from this throne of God. And I want you to hear what it says. It says that there was the throne, verse 1, of God and of the Lamb. God and the Lamb are the same. There's one throne. There's not two thrones. There's not a throne for God and a throne for the Lamb. There's one throne because God is the Lamb. Verse 2, it says that on either side of this river that was flowing from The throne was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb. How many thrones? One. That one throne will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. And they will see two faces. No, they will see one face. One face. And His name will be on their foreheads. We will see His face and His name will be on our foreheads. How many thrones are there? One. How many persons are there? One. How many faces will we see? One. Because there's but one God who has manifested, who has revealed Himself as Father and as Son. And there's but one. His name is Jesus. Now, at this point, many Trinitarians will ask, well, what about the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. I could read your mind. 
The Holy Spirit is just another name for the one true God, the Spirit of God. That's who He is. Although God is one person, we obviously recognize that God is invisible. God is spirit. God is omnipresent. God is transcendent. He works in everyone's life. It's not that He's confined to time and space as we are, but His Spirit can be in all places at once. God can be in all places at once. And just think of this. Who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you might just answer plainly, the Father, God Himself. Well, we see, and again, it's Christmas time, it was by the Holy Spirit that Mary conceived. You could say the Spirit is the Father of Jesus Christ in that sense. Because God is Father. God is Son, and God is Spirit. Who raised Jesus? Who gives life to the dead? Who adopts us? Who lives in us? Who comforts us? Who sanctifies us? Who inspires Scripture? Well, you might think, well, for some of those, it's the Father. Some of those, it's the Spirit. Actually, Scripture says for each one of those, the Father does it and the Spirit does it. There are verses that say the Father or the Spirit. That's because the Father and the Spirit are totally one. The Bible uses both names for each one of those actions. So how does this all work, you ask? Well, let me give you just a brief breakdown to conclude. In creation and in Israel, we see God manifesting Himself as Father. That's how He related to the world and particularly to Israel as Father, Creator. In redemption, we see God manifesting Himself as Son. He comes and He lives a life on earth and dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And now, in regeneration, when a person is born again, when a person believes on the name of Jesus and is baptized in His name, we relate to God as Spirit. God is Spirit. He revealed Himself in different ways at different times, didn't He? And there's no such thing as threeness being germane to the nature of God. This is something that was made up something that infiltrated the church, that God had to be three. You never see it in the pages of Scripture. He cannot be limited to three manifestations. He cannot be divided. He is truly one, and He relates to us in so many different ways. So, how shall we refer to God? Well, we can call Him God. We can call Him Jehovah. That's the name He gave. Uh, you could say Yahweh even. But we also know that He explicitly gave us the name Jesus. God's name is Jesus. We baptize in that name and we understand that He is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit. He's also King and Lord and Bridegroom and Husband and High Priest and Lamb and Word and Shepherd. You can't limit Him in the ways that He relates to us, the way that He's manifested in our lives. He is so much more than all of these things. And the Bible teaches that He is but one, totally, completely, utterly one. So who's ready to be rebaptized? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Oh. That's my pitch. All right. <laughs> it smell like a wolf. <laughs> there you go. All right. So the first to present his case seems right until another comes forward to examine him. Proverbs 18:17. And our sheep-like friend here uh, started off by pointing out that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And 
He's absolutely right. It's not in the Bible. But then he went on to explain monotheism. Monotheism is also not in the Bible. And he referenced the Bible itself several times. The word Bible is not in the Bible. So just because something is not in the Bible does not mean that it is not something that we can use, not something that's useful to us. So these words are words that we use to examine the Bible and um, to test Scripture to give us a, a better understanding of these concepts we find in the Bible. And so we must test these concepts through the lens of the Bible. So I hope you guys have your Bibles ready and that you are ready to examine this teaching together. So the, the Trinity, properly understood, uh, really consists of three teachings that we can find in Scripture. It talks about the the singularity of God, that there is but one God, just as our friend pointed out. It talks about the plurality of God, that Father, Son, and Spirit are each fully 100% God. And it talks about the equality of these three different persons of the one true God. And our friend here, he would fully affirm the singularity of God. He is a oneness Pentecostal, so he says that God is one. He would also affirm the equality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. However, we differ on the, the plurality aspect that they are different, distinct persons, one from another. They are, in fact, three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the one being of God. There are three co-equal, co-eternal persons that share the one being of God. We recognize the, the oneness and the singularity of God as his essence, his nature, his stuff, who he actually is. This is the, the what of God. There is one God, one what, but three who's, three persons of God. And this does not mean that we think that there are three gods. We are not tritheists. We fully affirm there is one God, yet three persons who fully share in that one being of God. And our friend here, he also pointed out that he starts off with the Old Testament, just like the Jews. And the Jews wouldn't have an understanding of a, a three-personed God. Um, and then he moves on to the New Testament. And he suggested that we as Trinitarians, we start with the New Testament. And we work our, ourselves backwards. And so I want to go back to the Old Testament and start off with the Old Testament where this idea of God's singularity is most established. The foundation of God's singularity is uh, really understood well in the Old Testament, that there is but one God. We see this all throughout, that God says, I alone am God. There is no other. He says he doesn't even know of another God. He says that he is a jealous God. He shares his glory with nobody else. We fully affirm the fact that there is but one being of God, one essence, one nature of God. And I want to go back and I want to see if we can see glimpses of the persons of God being manifested in the Old Testament. We understand that the New Testament is where this manifestation is fully realized. This mystery of the Trinity is fully understood at the incarnation of Christ when God became flesh and took on flesh. And not long after that, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and understanding was made more full through the, the Holy Spirit. But we see glimpses of the, the Trinity in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Starting off at the very beginning in Genesis 1.26, where it says, Let us make man in our image. 
a lot of people, a lot of oneness Pentecostals will tell you that this is referring to the angels. However, God does not share a nature with the angels. He doesn't share an image with the angels. This word image is singular, where it's, it's talking about um, us and our in a plural sense. God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, we see references to the angel of the Lord, who we believe to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And this angel of the Lord receives worship, whereas other angels and other disciples, other people, humans who are ascribed worship, they refuse that worship correctly, realizing that they are not God, but the angel of the Lord, he doesn't do that. Uh, the commander of the Lord's army told Joshua that he needs to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. We again believe this to be Jesus, the second person of the one God. And we know from John 4.24 and Deuteronomy 4 that God is spirit, that he doesn't have a body, that he doesn't take on a form. And yet we have these appearances in the Old Testament where God, Yahweh, seems to take on a, a form, a human-like body, a human body. Um, Yahweh visits Abraham in Genesis 18 um, by the, the oaks of Mamre, and he walks with, with Abraham. He talks and has a discussion with Abraham while he is on the earth, whereas uh, a oneness Pentecostal would have a, a difficult time explaining that because the father, who should not have a, 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 a body, he is spirit, should be in heaven. Uh, Jacob wrestled with God. You remember this? Before he was renamed Israel, Jacob physically wrestled with God. And John tells us in John 12, 41, that Isaiah saw Jesus sitting upon the throne. So if we look at Isaiah chapter 6, we'll see that Isaiah is standing before the throne as the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we learn later in, in John that this is actually Jesus, which makes a lot of sense as a Trinitarian because Jesus has taken on flesh, right? So this, again, would be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, which helps us clarify how it is that God is sitting on the throne when God is spirit. Well, this spirit, um, or this God, rather, is Jesus who has taken on flesh. Our friend brought up Isaiah 9-6, uh, which says that... Um, unto us a, a child is given, un, or unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it goes on to call him Mighty God, Eternal Father. Well, we should understand this phrase as uh, Father of Eternity, or the one who is eternal, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, who is without beginning. This is not equating Jesus with the Father, but it is saying that he is the one who has no beginning, he has no end. He is the great I am, the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. This is the one who is going to uh, be the son who is given to us. <clears throat> and as I said before, God's revelation of the Trinity becomes uh, much more clear in the New Testament as this is a purpose for the New Testament to make God known that Jesus came in the flesh to make God known. He referenced Colossians 2.9, which says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Uh, this is uh, just, we have, to, we have to go back, we have to establish some context, because Paul already has made a distinction between the Father and the Son 
up until this point. So if we go back into the first chapter of Colossians and look at verses 15 through 17, we can see Jesus' work prior to his incarnation. So Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent or firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Jesus is the one who created um, before the incarnation, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so it's not as if Jesus simply came into existence at the incarnation. It's not as if Jesus simply came into this world at the incarnation. Uh, We see pre-incarnate examples of Jesus. We see Jesus working in creation before the incarnation. In John 8, uh, which our, our friend referenced, we see a clear distinction in persons. So as I read through these these verses, look out for uh, personal pronouns, I, you, me, we, um, making distinctions between the persons that share the one being of God, uh, for personal relationships, for uh, verbs that indicate that one is being sent or one is being given. These are verbs that are uh, paramount to understand if we're going to understand that there are distinct persons within the one being of God. And if we don't understand that, then we have some, some big problems indeed. And then also some, uh, some prepositions with um, as, as being one of them that indicate multiple persons. So starting in John 8, 38, Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Again, we see a distinction in persons there. Verse 40, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who was has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This can't be Jesus' humanity speaking to his deity, which a lot of oneness Pentecostals will say it's just Jesus, the, the divine nature of Jesus speaking to the divine nature, or the human nature speaking to the divine nature. Uh, let's look at verse 42, which says that Jesus said to them, If God were your father, then you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. We see a, an utter distinction which can't be explained by, the, by dividing the two natures of Jesus. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. Uh, he referenced John 10.30. I and the Father are one. The, the Greek word here for our, uh, esmen, is in the first person plural. So it should, or we could translate it, I and the Father, we are one. Again, talking about the distinction between the Son and the Father. And if we look at the context of this, um, going back a couple of verses, this isn't talking about uh, the, the, uni- the unity of these two persons um, in, in one person. And neither is it talking about these two persons being united as, as one being, which uh, Christians ourselves, we are often uh, guilty of, of doing, but rather it's talking about how they are Uh, united in their redemption, in their ability to save and to keep their people. 27 talks about how um, if, how the sheep know the voice of Jesus and he knows his sheep. 28 talks about how um, they can never be taken out of the son's hands. Says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me 
the Father has given, right? That's something that one person does for another is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one in this respect, in their respect of um, salvation and keeping those whom they have saved. And if we go back even further in John 3.35, it talks about how the Father loved the Son whom He has given. There is love between these two different distinct persons of the one being of God. We see this again in John 5.20, in 15.9. All throughout Scripture, we can see examples of how there is love and relationship between the persons of the one nature of God. And we see even further that there is um, communication between these distinct persons. The first person, the Father, speaks to the second person, Jesus, at his baptism, at the transfiguration, saying, this is my beloved Son, who, in whom I am well pleased. Again, distinguishing the two persons of God. He does this once more in John 12, 27 28. And each time we hear of this kind of interaction going on, it's indicated that this is a voice from heaven that comes down from heaven while Jesus is on earth and there's communication between these two distinct persons. And I think the greatest insight that we have into the inner Trinitarian relationship of Jesus and the Father comes from uh, the, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 where Jesus is praying to the Father. And I want to close by reading you these verses in John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have given. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, this can't be the humanity of Jesus praying to the deity of Jesus because the humanity of Jesus didn't have glory with the deity of Jesus before. This is talking about the two distinct persons of the one being of God. I am from the World Mission Society Church of God. And I agreed quite a bit with the person who was wearing this jacket before me. Um, I, I believe that there is only one God, um, that this God manifests himself in different ways. In the Old Testament, he manifests himself primarily as the Father. In the Gospels, he manifests himself primarily as Jesus. And after Jesus' ascension, he manifests himself primarily as the Holy Spirit. All these names refer to the one God, Jehovah. I want to start by explaining something to you that I think most Christians really don't understand. Um, I want to start in Genesis 1.26, which says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he goes on the next verse and he talks about how God created them male and female. Now, how is it that God, the one God, can create two distinct genders, male and female? Well, again, something that most Christians don't understand is that there is not only a father God, but there is a mother God as well. 
And that is how we can see male and female created from the one image of God because there is both father and mother in the one being of God, in the one person of God. Um, let's see. So God created them male and female. So there is a mother God. We can also call this mother God heavenly mother. This is a, an understandable thing for us to do because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 9, he taught us how to pray. And he said, you can pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus identified the Father as heavenly Father. So we can understand the mother and refer to her as heavenly mother. Now, we all know that um, all things that receive life, receive life through their mothers. Even a four-year-old can tell you that everything that receives life, receives life from its mother. And this actually includes humanity. So we must receive life from our mother. We can't receive life from a father and a father alone. Look with me at Revelation 4.11. This verse says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of you, your will, they existed and they were created. So it was the will of Mother God to create humanity. We could not have life without Mother God. Without mother, there is no life. Without mother, there is no eternal life and there is no truth. We must understand God to be not only Father God, but also Mother God. Now, one of the favorite, our favorite verses to share is Revelation 22.17. Revelation 22.17 says that the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So according to the Trinity, the Spirit in this verse refers to God the Father. Then who is the bride of God the Father? Well, if we go back one chapter, we can see the answer to this. Who is the bride of God the Father? Revelation 21, 9 through 10 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he came and carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So Scripture here says that the bride is the heavenly Jerusalem. And this heavenly Jerusalem, she is our mother. Now, some people will say that this bride is referring to Mary. It can't be referring to the Virgin Mary uh, because she is not the wife of, of God, right? It also can't be referring to the saints or to the church, but rather to the wife of the Lamb. We'll remember from Revelation twenty two seventeen that it's the bride who gives the water of life freely. So this can't be referring to the saints, can't be referring to the church, but it must be Mother God, who is this heavenly Jerusalem. Again, we can see this in Galatians 4.26, which says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Our mother is the Jerusalem above. Once again, in the Old Testament, we see Jehovah presented as, or we see God presented as the Father Jehovah. In the Gospels, we see that his name is Jesus, the Son. And I want you to look with me at John 14, where we'll see that Jesus is preparing us for the age of the Holy Spirit. So John 14, 19 
says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, Jesus, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So we must keep his commandments. And he who loves me will be, the, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we are not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. And we must keep all the commandments of Christ in order for him to disclose his spirit to us. We see the same thing in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And then we will come to him and make our abode with him. Here we see again that even though this is the age of the Son, that the Father and the Spirit are both mentioned as well, showing us that God is an omnipresent God. He isn't bound by space. He isn't bound by time. But we see him demonstrating himself as omnipresent. In verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You have heard it said that you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. Jesus promised that he would come back and a second, he would come back a second time as the Holy Spirit. He said, you've heard it said that I go away and I will come to you. So Jesus is coming back. He did come back as the Holy Spirit. Many people misunderstand Jesus' words in Matthew 24 to be saying that there are going to be other false Christs that are going to come. We need to watch out for them. But those words understood literally say that after you find the second coming Christ, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, etc. Well, we have found the second coming Christ. The Holy Spirit, Mother God, the New Jerusalem, the bride, and her name is An Song Hong. And just as we saw her in the beginning of the Bible, we, we see her in the end. <laughs> <laughs> the Holy Spirit's name is An Song Hong, the second coming of Jesus. We see her in the end of the Bible too. Let me read to you Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall see his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. So once again, the Holy Spirit has come. Mother God has come. She is now with us. She is the second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, we see Jesus. The second coming of Christ, we see An Song Hong. And we must understand that if we want to be saved and be right with this one person, God. Thanks be to Jehovah for each one of you. Rex, you're sitting pretty close at the pillar of fire that's going to descend. My consumer. <laughs> Well, 
Um, as we think about how to respond to some nonsense like that, uh, it should be helpful to start off with the idea that, or the truth, that nowhere in the Bible do you see the word mother in the sense of some sort of eternal heavenly being. So the person who's trying to push that agenda starts from a, a extreme disadvantage in that uh, some sort of, and, uh, as a clarification point, Mother God exists as a separate being from Father God. Okay, so they are the same being. Okay. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yes, so uh, this, this one being who uh, has some sort of a split personality when it comes to the gender issue, uh, the male version of God will manifest himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, but the female version of God just manifests herself, I guess, in some different ways. But never never are we told that there's a mother. So he, he went to Genesis 1.26 first. So let's start there. Genesis 1.26. Now this is a very critical verse for all of life, to understand life. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over the creeping things, everything that creeps on the earth. In verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. The argument from this section was that uh, a father and mother would be necessary in eternal divine father and mother would be necessary for both male and female human beings to bear the image of God. That's the idea that's being communicated there. Well, the first thing, when someone says something like that, the first thing we need to think is, what's their standard here? That is a arbitrary standard. We could come up with all sorts of standards and say, well, this must be the case because this wouldn't work otherwise. Well, Scripture says pretty clearly that God, He, notice in verse 27, uh, His own image... Okay, God's singular image, and it's his image, not her image, or not their image. It says his image, and the image of God. He created them, he again being masculine and being singular. Male and female, he, masculine, singular, this is all in verse 27, created them. This is how Scripture presents God to us. Scripture doesn't say that the God who contains both male and female genders created humans that reflect both male and female gender. That is, of course, uh, some sort of arbitrary standard that's imposed onto the text. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 was referenced where Jesus is giving us the model prayer. Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That gives us somehow license to say mother when Jesus was specifically saying pray this way, Father. Uh, that's a just a very plain twisting of the text that we shouldn't spend too much time on. Uh, very interesting comment was made by our, not friend, uh, our enemy, um, who said that we receive life from our mothers, and I believe this was a direct quote, we can't receive life from fathers alone. Well, turn with me to John 5 and look at what Jesus says in John chapter 5, particularly verse 26. I'll start at verse 25. John 5, 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Okay, verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself. Stop, 
Where did God the Father get his life? Well, in himself. So this whole idea is refuted from that very simple statement that we can only get life from mothers, unless you're willing to argue that God has a mother who gave him life, which would directly contradict the words of Jesus. But then the next part of the verse, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. He, the father, alone gave to the son to have life in himself. No mother was involved in imparting that life. See that? So by that one verse, that whole standard of, well, we receive life from mothers, that's pretty well destroyed. Uh, there's no biblical warrant for that. Uh, about half of the time, I think the second half of the presentation was focused on Revelation 21 and 22, uh, starting with Revelation 22:7, where the Spirit and the Bride are saying, come. There's an invitation issued by the Spirit and the Bride. It says, uh, they say, come, and the one who hears, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The teaching that was put forth is that this verse is clearly teaching that the bride is offering water. That is not found in this text, is it? It doesn't say that anybody's offering water. It just says that there is water of life and that it can be taken without cost. It doesn't say who's offering the water. And so to say that the bride here is referring to Mother God or Heavenly Mother, and she's the one actively offering the water of life to human beings is not just a twisting of the text, it's just bad grammar and syntax. You just can't even get that from what is being communicated in that section. And to say that this bride is uh, the wife of God, or I shouldn't say that, uh, the female person aspect, what would you say? The femaleness of God? Uh, is, of, of course, another way of twisting the Scripture because the bride consistently, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the New Testament epistles, the bride is a reference to the church. Um, in Ephesians 5, Paul uses the illustration of um, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Christ, who is eternal God, he has a bride and that is can, made up of the saints. To say, and I think this was based on Revelation 21.9, to say that the bride is the heavenly Jerusalem, oh yeah, 21.9 and 10, that the bride is the heavenly Jerusalem and that represents the femaleness of God, well, I will just ask all of you with your own independent thinking brains that function, look at Revelation 21.9 and 10 and you tell me, does that say that God has a female aspect and that we are to recognize every use of the word bride as the female aspect of God? And the answer, of course, will be no, because that is just not what it says. John was told, come here, verses verse 9, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay, that's speaking of the church, as we see consistently in the New Testament. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay, does that say that that is the bride? Well, it doesn't explicitly say that. You could draw that conclusion, but it doesn't say that explicitly. Coming down from the heaven of God, having the glory of God. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a high wall with 12 gates, the gates, 12 angels. Is this sounding like a female aspect of God? Only if we just incredibly spiritualize the text to the point where words have no meaning whatsoever, Right? There were, let's just keep reading. There were names written on them, names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 
There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. And you go on and he's talking about the measurements of this place. You can cross-reference this with some Old Testament texts that talked about it. The types of stones that are featured, the foundation stones, goes on and on and on. Uh, Drop down to verse 21, it's talking about the street of the city being like pure gold, like transparent glass. He saw no temple in this city. It seems like it's talking about a real city. A very big, real, physical city with actual measurements, with actual stones. Yes. Uh, So interesting that you could say, not a woman at all. Not a female at all. But an actual city. Okay? So, uh, just all you have to do to refute such thinking is think for yourself and read the text. I'll stop there. Really? Let's see. Oh, yes, very good. Very good. Yep. Well, any any other questions about the mother God teaching or of the first one, two of things have popped into your head since then? <laughs>